the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Okay, well, we have made it to Matthew chapter 4. If we stop and consider the general overflow of Matthew, we can see we begin to discern some, uh, some parallels in, in the gospel in the terms of the way that he's telling it. As I've mentioned before, it appears as though Matthew has in mind, at least in some manner, the story of the Exodus and uh, Israel's coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea and then, and then coming to a Sinai and uh, neglecting to trust God in terms of entering the land and therefore needing to wander for 40 years, and how that is a background to what Yeshua is doing in the sense that he is Israel as Israel ought to be, or as I, I've said before, the, the quintessential Israelite. If we, if we expect that the Messiah comes to save Israel, then we would also expect that the Messiah comes as the one... T- who lives as Israel is to live. And so I, uh, it, it, you'll, you'll notice that in the book of Luke, in Luke's gospel, he has the uh, baptism or the mikvah of Yeshua separated from the temptation by the genealogies. He, puts the gene- he, he lists the genealogies after the, the baptism of Yeshua rather than before. And uh, why would he do that? Well, it appears that he wants that he wants to emphasize the fact, as his genealogy tells us, that um, Yeshua is the second Adam or the last Adam. In other words, he compares Yeshua and Adam. He takes that genealogy back to Adam. In Matthew's gospel, however, it appears that he is emphasizing the connection of Yeshua with Israel. That he is comparing him to Abraham, the father. Of, of Israel, so to speak, ultimately Jacob, but um, beginning with the call of, of Abraham and so forth. Uh, many Christian commentators have looked at that and said, what Matthew is telling us is that Yeshua replaces Israel. In other words, they, it sets up their theology for what we call supersessionism or, or replacement theology, that Yeshua is the new Israel, and therefore all those who are his followers, all of those who are in Yeshua, are likewise the new Israel. Um, but the, the, the only reason you would come to that interpretation is if you had already determined that was the conclusion. Instead, when Matthew, you know, as we read it, and I think it's pretty clear that when Yeshua comes, he comes to redeem Israel. So we would expect that he would walk in all of the ways that are in obedience as over against Israel's disobedience, that he would be the Redeemer. He would come as the righteous one who would bring righteousness to Israel. And I think that's fairly clear as, you know, I ask you to keep your eyes open for that as we read Matthew, how the failures of Israel as a nation are turned in, in Yeshua's life uh, to be just the opposite, to be victories in obedience. And therefore, following Yeshua, you know, the bottom line for Matthew is following Yeshua will be to be as Israel is supposed to be. If you follow in his footsteps, then you will uh, clearly do what God always intended Israel to do. It's not a replacing of Israel. It's bringing Israel to the place that she really should be. So, um, I don't know if you've, if you've sensed that as you've read through Matthew and Hopefully you continue to read through it. I, I try to kind of just read occasionally, just open up and read it, because we're going slow enough that if we don't do that, we'll, we'll miss the, the whole picture. So if we take the first four verses of uh, Matthew 4, we read, Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Yeshua said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Yeshua said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. So this whole issue of temptation, you know, the the interesting thing about temptation is when you think you have a handle on it, you've, you've been tempted more than you thought. You know, when you think, oh, you know, I'm beyond, I'm not tempted anymore in this area or that area then that itself is the temptation <laughs> to uh, to either be lax or to be proud or to consider that you've won the victory more or less through your own maturity and strength and so forth and so on. The other problem with temptation is that in some ways uh, the evil one has an ally in each one of us, and he knows that. The sinful nature is bent to uh, agree with his, and you know, with his temptations. We can use the physical picture of an appetite. You know, whenever you're dieting, I think probably all of us have done that at one time or another. Maybe a few of you don't, don't ever need to do that, but some of us do that more than others. You know, it, it, it's, it, the things that you like the most are the things that usually are, aren't in your diet when, you, when you're dieting. The things that you, you know, and you just... You just sit down at the table and you say, oh, to yourself, you might say, boy, you know, this food looks nutritious, but I really long for, <laughs> you know, the, the thick pizza or whatever that you're, uh, that you're having to avoid. And so there's, there's just that draw to whatever it is, what the writer to the Hebrew says, the sin that easily trips us up or the things that we we naturally have a draw towards and the evil one therefore can exploit that he can put us into those situations where we are constantly having to say no and yet if there's anything that we learn from the temptation story of yeshua i think it is that overcoming temptation and being victorious over temptation is possible for those who walk in the spirit it isn't something that's out of our reach One of the greatest lies that the the evil one gives to us is that after we have failed and failed and failed again, that there's no hope, there's no way out. You are trapped in this uh, cycle of failure. And then we begin to rationalize, we begin to make excuses, we begin to say, well, everybody fails and, you know, I fail in this area and so I'm just like everybody else. And we kind of uh, throw in the towel, so to speak, and kind of give up. Uh, of course, the Spirit won't let us do that. There, there's an, uh, a nagging emptiness when the Spirit is grieved. So we, we really don't have a choice in, this, in the sense of persevering because if we don't persevere, we're going to get nagged in the right sense of that term. We're going to continue to be prodded by the Spirit of God to persevere. And life is not going to be comfortable uh, until we take those steps of, of perseverance. So God has purchased us. He intends to retrieve that which he has purchased. He's not going to allow someone else to take what he has rightfully purchased. So he is intent on us becoming like Yeshua. And he uh, is not going to give up on that. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that is the point. All right, let's uh, look a little more closely at this Temptation of Yeshua. Chapter 4 opens with the temptation of Yeshua by the devil, who was also called the tempter and Satan, or Satan. That Yeshua combats the tempter by quoting three times from Deuteronomy, casts the whole pericope as a parallel to the wanderings of Israel in the desert for 40 years, and may well be written with Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3 specifically in mind. This is, he quotes, of course, from this passage. You shall remember, and this is uh, Moses' admonition, 
to the Israelites as they're coming in to take, hopefully, to uh, occupy the land. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Can you see the parallels? Obviously. I mean, you know, why did God allow Israel to uh, wander in the desert? Well, you might say, well, she wandered in the desert because she she failed to trust him to go up and take the land, right? When the spies came back and said, you know, it's, it's fortified cities and we're like grasshoppers in their sight and we can't do this and everybody groaned and whatever. And then God said, okay, well, then you're not going to go up. But he had more in that than just a mere punishment or discipline for Israel. He intended then to use the wandering in the wilderness, according to what Moses says here, as a time of testing to see precisely what their heart was towards him. And he brought hunger upon them for that reason, too. It's, it's from these kinds of things that we understand what the apostles clearly teach us, and that is that we should, in, in some ways, I mean, we have to be careful here, but they say, when you come into, into trials, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to rejoice. Why? Well, because the trials are what God uses to uh, temper you or that to prove your, your mettle. It's the time of testing where we learn who we truly are and therefore have the opportunity to rely upon God's mercies and grace to become whom he wants us to be. Apart from that, where would we be? And I, I know Paulette and I have reminded ourselves repeatedly through the years of raising children you know, sometimes you think, what are we going to do with this kid? You know, it just seems like, you know, we can't hardly go a day or two without some significant issue that we have to deal with. We keep reminding ourselves that uh, when we're dealing with those issues in our children's lives, that's the point at time in which we have the best teaching opportunities. You know, the compliant child who just always does everything right, you're not always certain exactly what might be... <laughs> Uh, you know, what part needs to be trained that isn't showing up at this point? The child who's acting out, at least you get a chance to say, now, okay, let's talk about why you're doing this and, you know, what the consequences are and so forth and so on. So in the same way, the difficulties that come into our lives gives us the opportunity to see who we truly are in light of what God intends us to be. Thus, the temptation of Yeshua is put in direct contrast to Israel, who grumbled over the lack of food and gave into idolatry in the sin of Baal Peor. In each place where Israel failed, Yeshua is victorious. Likewise, that the temptation comes after Yeshua's mikveh may also signal the parallel with Israel's having gone through the Red Sea and her exodus from Egypt. And this all, more, all, all the more because of where he was baptized on the other side of the Jordan. Or at least that's how the Gospels seem to uh, cast it. Having gone through the waters of a new exodus, Yeshua enters the desert to undergo a time of testing, his 40 days of fasting analogous to Israel's 40 years of wandering. He is tested through hunger and by, by relief through idolatry, but in each case he models the true heart of faith and obedience which gains the victory. So in every way that Israel failed, Yeshua is victorious. We may also note a rabbinic source dealing with how true and false prophets are to be discerned, in which a story is told of, of Satan's tempting of Abraham on his way to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. I got interested in this little thing because the rabbis are, are concerned about how can you tell a false prophet from a true prophet? That, that's one of the questions we have on, you know, in our day. It's pretty interesting, the criteria that they give. But at any rate, in the, in the middle of that, um, they talk about Satan testing Abraham on his way to sacrifice Isaac. While the legend is found in later Talmudic literature, it may reflect an earlier and well-known story. On the way, Satan came towards him, that is, towards Abraham, and said to him, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. That's a quote from Job. Remember, I mean, his friends say, you know, you were, a, you were a real help to everybody when they were in trouble, but now you're in trouble. So what do you think? He replied, I will walk in mine integrity. 
But, said Satan to him, should not thy fear be thy confidence? That's another quote from Job. Remember, he retorted, I pray thee, whoever perishes being innocent. In other words, the innocent don't perish. So if I walk in my integrity, I can have hope. Seeing that he would not listen to him, Satan said to him, Now a thing was secretly brought to me. Job 4.12 Thus I have heard from behind the curtain the lamb for a burnt offering, but not Isaac for a burnt offering. In other words, I'll tell you a little secret, Satan says. I already know you're not going to have to sacrifice your son. There's going to be a substitute for him. So why are you even going? You don't even need to go. You can just turn around and go home. He replied, It is the penalty of a liar that should he even tell the truth, he is not listened to. In other words, that's one of the proofs of a false prophet. If you know somebody that regularly tells lies, and then he comes to you and says, The Lord gave me a word for you. Even if he told you the truth, you're not supposed to believe it, because he's not to be trusted. Well, the point here is not about how to tell a true prophet from a false prophet, but the similarities that we see between Satan and Avraham, what happens? They're each quoting scripture. Pretty much from the same context, from Job. One applying it one way and and the other applying it a different way. The similarities to the temptation are obvious. Satan argues by quoting scripture. Abraham rebuffs by quoting from scripture, but especially by showing that Satan misquotes or misinterprets the scripture. And three, that even when Satan correctly quotes scripture, he is not to be believed since he is a known liar, thus explaining the criteria for discerning a false prophet. Moreover, the rabbinic perspective based upon Psalm 11.5 was that God tests the righteous, not the wicked. If you turn to Psalm 11.5, um, you'll see that your, your English Bibles probably don't quite say what the rabbis are saying. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence whose soul hates. The stories that they tell, or, or, or the, the illustrations they give is like, A potter who knows that there is a crack in a pot does not put it under extreme testing because he knows it will fail. He only is willing in, in, uh, in the view of his customers to, to put the pot, you know, in the flame, uh, when he knows for sure there's no cracks in it. So the idea is that the Lord puts the, the righteous through the strongest, uh, uh, testing, but the wicked, um, he doesn't. Uh, test. So that fits with Abraham and with uh, Job and with the rest. Now, how do they do that out of Psalm 11.5? Because it says the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Well, if, you're, if you look in the Hebrew, it, the way the words are lined up, and particularly the Masoretic accentuation, when you look at how the Masoretes accented the sentence, it's like they put a comma after the word righteous. And the Lord tests the righteous. Comma. And the wicked and the one who does violence, his soul hates. So wicked and the one who does violence are put together as over against the righteous. And from this, the rabbis derive that God only tests the righteous, not the wicked. In Perkeia Vote 5.4, we read, Ten trials were inflicted upon Abraham our father. May he rest in peace. And he withstood all of them to show you how great his love was for Abraham our father. May he rest in peace. We may therefore understand Matthew's retelling of the temptation as a clear message of Yeshua's greatness, that he was chosen as a righteous man to accomplish God's will. What I'm saying is this, that Matthew and perhaps his audience, fully aware of this rabbinic perspective that God tests the righteous, not the wicked, then when Yeshua comes under this extreme testing, what does that tell us? He's righteous. He's one that God intended to show everyone else that he would pass the test. This is seen in his superior knowledge of Scripture and thus of God and his strength in withstanding the tempter. As such, he stands as the quintessential Israelite who maintains complete covenant faithfulness even in the face of great trials. As such, he stands in the place of the promised Messiah who would redeem Israel through his own righteousness and ultimately through his sacrificial death. So at at the time Matthew is writing this gospel... There is, there is still a large contingency of, Israel, of, of the Jewish community that has not accepted Yeshua as the Messiah. And so we kind of have to always keep in mind that he's writing, he's not writing in, in 30 or 40, he's writing later on, maybe even just before the destruction or maybe after the destruction, as I suggested in the introduction. So 
So this whole idea, is Yeshua to the true Messiah, continues to be an, a very important point in, in the uh, perspective of the gospel writers. Because they want, they want to show that in every way his life proved that he was the righteous Messiah that was promised by the prophets. Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If you look at the three, at, at the three synoptic gospels together, Mark, this is, this is the entire uh, notice in Mark. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. That's the whole story as far as Mark is concerned. So we may presume that the story of Yeshua's temptation was well known by Mark's audience, and thus he needed only to allude to it in order to evoke the complete story in their minds. I'm presuming that this story of the temptation of Yeshua was very well known by the early followers of Yeshua. And so by the time Mark and, and uh, Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, Mark tends not to expand things. Mark's the shortest Gospel. He tends to say things very succinctly, and it could be that he, he, it didn't serve his purpose necessarily to expand on the temptation. On the other hand, Luke's account is even longer than Matthew's. And he reverses the, temp- the last two temptations. Whereas, um, whereas Matthew has Yeshua going from the river up to, the, uh, up to Jerusalem and then to the mountain, Luke has him going from the river to the mountain and ending in Jerusalem. I'm not sure why. Uh, perhaps maybe to show a progression from the desert to the mountain, finally Jerusalem, to put Jerusalem as the, as the high point, so to speak, rather than the mountain as the high point in the temptation. Is there a sense then that uh, Luke wants us to see Yeshua as the priest who comes to Jerusalem? Maybe. You know, we always talk about being led by the Spirit. Do you want to be led by the Spirit this way? I know I'm pretty tough on the charismatics, so I don't, I don't want to beat the beat the podium too much here, but you know, in, in, the, in, in many of the uh, messages that I've heard on the Spirit of God and, and the way the Spirit of God works in the believer and so forth, I don't hear very many, very many messages on a verse like the one we're opening with here in chapter 4. You know, if you're led by the Spirit, what do you get? Health, prosperity, comfort, uh, pretty much all that you want. And yet when Yeshua is led by the Spirit, he goes out to the desert. He doesn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in that, in that state of physical weakness, he is approached directly by Satan. And apparently, it is the Spirit's will for that to happen. So we, if, if we learn nothing else from these opening verses of chapter 4, we should learn that being led by the Spirit does not guarantee a life of comfort. It guarantees a life of holiness, but not a life of comfort. In this open, yes, question. Uh, the question is in Mark, it, it includes the wild beasts, which is not found in Matthew or Luke. Well, you're in the desert. You're kind of unprotected, right? So, you know, whether he was attacked by uh, the wild beasts or whether they simply he recognized his vulnerability, being alone in the desert is not really uh, the situation you want. Well, apparently not. Apparently, you know, there's nothing to indicate that he was harmed, but. You know, when you go to sleep at night and you're out in the open and you're entirely unprotected, you know, there, there can be those fears. And so, you know, the one thing that I have to say in all of these things, I mean, in, in all three of the synoptics, Yeshua, once again, is portrayed to us as a common man with common with the common weaknesses. And, what you know, he is the divine one, no doubt. But why, why would he, why would Mark even include he was with the wild beast if he could have just, you know, snapped his finger, said the word, and all, all the beasts would have just gone away? You know, he is not walking in the world as someone who's, uh, who's clothed with a galvanized shell that keeps him from, from all of the things that we experience. You know, and the bottom line in this is what the writer of the Hebrews says, that he was tempted or tested in every point like we are, yet without sin. And therefore, he can be a sympathetic high priest. He knows. He understands what we, what we face in our fears, in our... You know, and fear can be a temptation, right? There's nothing wrong with being afraid. I mean, somebody that's not afraid is, is dead. You have, to be, uh, you have to have a fear of some things in order to just preserve your life. 
I'm always nervous about people that walk around with a smile on their face all the time. I'm just not sure that they're, I'm not sure that they're, they're, you know, walking on the ground with their eyes open. There's plenty of stuff in this world not to smile about. You know, have you, I'm sure you have, I know I have. Uh, there have been times when I thought I was home all by myself, you know, and uh, you didn't know someone was there. And you, all of a sudden the, the, a door slams and you, your heart skips a beat. <laughs> and you think, ah, you know, what was that? And, and then you find out it's, it's one of your children or someone that you didn't realize was at home. Uh, so I, I, there's nothing wrong with being afraid. But being afraid can be a temptation because when fear comes to us, then we have, we have uh, the issue to deal with it. And how are we going to deal with it? I, I think one of the times that I had the deepest-seated fear was when I was, uh, one of the times I was in Liberia, I forget which one, and I was carrying uh, quite a bit of U.S. currency on me because for the adoptions to take place in Liberia, they won't, receive, they won't accept money orders, they won't accept checks, all they will ch- uh, accept is U.S. currency. And I got off the airplane and I made my way to the Lungi Hotel in Sierra Leone. Uh, and as far as I could tell, my colleague and I uh, were the only two white men there. And they didn't have any rooms with two beds. They only had rooms with single beds. So he was sleeping in one room and I was sleeping in another. And they didn't give us keys for our rooms because there were no locks on the doors. And I remember going in there thinking to myself, okay, they have to know that I'm, I mean, they do know that I'm from America. And to them, every American is a millionaire. And I'm here all by myself, and I'm going to go to sleep in this place. And I'm, you know, I'm carrying more money than I ever carry. And all of a sudden, this wave of fear just came over me. It's like, you are, you are the biggest idiot to put yourself in this situation. You're going to die tonight. And they don't care. I mean, in Sierra Leone when we were there, they'd just as soon kill you as talk to you. There were people dying all over the place. And I thought to myself, okay, what can I do? And the answer came immediately. Nothing. There's nothing you can do. If you take a cab, he's going to rob you. you the, the, whole, the, the airport's shut down. They close it up when the last flight comes in, which is one flight every third day or something. So I said, Lord... Here I am. And so that's the, the reason I tell you the story is that the point of fear can come as a temptation for us to panic and, to, and not to trust. It's at that point where we have to say, Lord, here I am, and it's, it's you. That's all there is. Nothing more. Okay. So when you finally come down to that realization, what do you do? You lay down and go to sleep, you know, which I was able to do. I slept pretty well. So I just figured, okay, Lord. I believe that you wanted me here. I believe you brought me here. Maybe I didn't think through everything as well as I should have. And, and you know, I should have been packing a, a you know, a, something here to protect myself. And I didn't. And, uh, but, okay, there's nothing I can do about that. Here I am. So I, you just, you just, re, you just say, Lord, it's up to you. And then you go to sleep, you know, or you can go the other route and not believe and not have faith. And that's where fear becomes a temptation. So I think the reason Mark includes he was with the wild beast was that, hey, there was every element in his life at this point to cause deep-seated fear. He couldn't rely upon anybody but his father. In this opening verse, Matthew writes that Yeshua was led up by the Spirit. While Luke has a similar, similar verb, but not with the word up, Mark has the active ekbalo which the NASB translates impelled by the Spirit, but the verb is probably more causative, emphasizing the issue was driven by the Spirit into the desert. The same verb is used in Genesis 3 where it says that God expelled Adam from the garden. Now, isn't that an interesting kind of a, uh, I don't know, parallel? Was he led by the... Led by the Spirit usually means that you had a choice. Mark said he was driven by the Spirit. And, you know, this gets back to some of our former discussions on, on the whole issue of man's will. Of course, you know that I don't believe that there's such a thing as a free will. But it, can a child of God who truly is born from above and has a spirit, can he in, in, in honesty forever resist the spirit? 
is there does there come a time when he will or she will inevitably submit to the spirit if if, if you answer yes which i think is the right answer in other words if in, if indeed we have the spirit of god then there's no way in the world we can clearly we can entirely resist his will because he is going to have his way which means that as believers we don't have a free will we do have a, we do have the ability to disobey but ultimately our will is going to be aligned with what God intends to do. And Yeshua, you would think of all people, would have a free will. And yet, on the one hand, it says he's led by the Spirit. On the other hand, it says he's driven by the Spirit, almost as though he doesn't have a choice. He goes into the desert because that's God's will, and he doesn't, as a righteous man, really have a choice with regard to God's will. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. The question is, what does it look like? Well, it has to be inward. The spirit. There's no indication that the spirit, you know, you know, physically lassoed him and and drug him out to the desert or something like that, right? Yeah. Just before this, the spirit descended upon him as he came up out of the water, and uh, uh, yeah. The question is, did he tell people? Did he consult? Did he get advice? Listen, I think I'm going to go out to the desert by myself for 40 days or so. What do you think? Uh, it doesn't appear as that was the case. Uh, there must have been some inner urging that basically said, this is what you need to do. This is where you need to go. You need to seek solitude. You need to uh, 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 seek a time of prayer. All, everything we read about Yeshua brings into greater perspective the mystery of his incarnation. Why would he need to pray? I hearken back to the uh, conversations I've had with some who were uh, just pretty upset at me that I said that Yeshua had to learn Torah. It's like, why would he have to learn Torah? Because he didn't know it. You know, why didn't he know it? Well, because he came as a man. So why does he need to pray? Same reason we need to pray. He was growing in grace. He was growing in wisdom. He was growing in knowledge. And the way that we grow in those things is by communing with God. And so here he was fasting and praying for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean... He felt that it was necessary for him, and that, was, that urging was upon him from the Spirit of God. I can't say anything more than that. Have you ever been compelled by the Spirit of God? Yeah, I think we all have. I mean, there, there's things where you just say, okay, I've got to do this. This has to happen. Some, and usually, at least in my life, the Spirit of God's urging are, are most often than not kind of uh, gentle at first. You know, the thought comes through your mind. Yeah, that would be a good thing to do. I probably should do that. Then you may neglect it. You know, you may, but you may neglect it. And the next time you think, oh, yeah, I kind of thought about that and didn't do anything about it, you know. And, uh, and, and if you continue to not resist but simply not follow through, something happens and, you, it, you know, your heart skips that beat again. And you say, oh, I've neglected this too long. This has to happen now. Now, how you know, obviously we struggle with the flesh. We struggle with the sin nature. Yeshua didn't. So when the Spirit of God urged him, he, he was on his way. But it was a strong urging of the Spirit. It wasn't something that was just according to Mark. He was actually cast out into the desert, if you wanted to be extremely literal with the verb. From Matthew's perspective, Yeshua was led into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted or tested. And by the way, in the Greek... The word to test, can, the Greek word can either mean uh, to test or to tempt. There's not two words. And I think sometimes our, our translators are, are not... I, I looked at 1 Corinthians 10.13 in several uh, translations, and 
they all, I think, got it wrong, except for the new revised standard version of all things. The, the liberals, I think, got this one right. James tells us that when you're tested, you're not tested of God. Or you're tempted. You're not tempted of God. But that the temp, that, that lust comes from within. Okay? And in another place it says God does not tempt anyone. So how do we see this then? The Spirit leads Yeshua into the desert, and he leads him into the desert for testing. But this testing comes at the hands of Satan, who hopes that the temptations will be will cause Yeshua to fail in terms of, of sinning. So he leads him into the wilderness for the purpose of, of, of testing uh, and to be tempted by Satan. This corresponds, as we've already read, to Deuteronomy 8.2, which speaks of Israel's wandering in the desert for the purpose of being tested. I, I made them to wander in the wilderness for what? So that I would test them and see if they loved me with, with their whole heart. Matthew has the temptation begin after the 40 days of fasting, right? It says uh, in the next verse, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. But Mar- Matthew and Luke, or Mark and Luke put the temptation as occurring during the 40 days. It may be that Mark and Luke both consider the fasting to be itself a testing which Satan attempted to exploit. I suppose most of us fast, I mean, in terms of any uh, set day for fasting, Yom Kippur is one day that, that many of us fast on. And that's just one day. How many of you have a difficulty on Yom Kippur fasting for the day? Is it easy or is it, no, it's tough? Yeah. Um, I've never fasted for more than about three days. Any of you had fast longer than three days? So, I, I don't know. Uh, for, for me, at least, uh, the third day was easier than the second day. Yeah, you lo- kind of lose your appetite and you, I don't know, you start getting some energy, actually. But uh, I have to believe that after 20 days, 25 days, 30 days, that things begin to, could look pretty bleak. Yeah. Okay, I saw a hand. Uh-huh. Well, like I say, it, it's possible that Mark and Luke both consider fasting to be itself a testing, which was then exploited by Satan. In other words, we see the explicit testing by Satan in the three-part uh, uh, three or three-phase testing. But it's very possible that Satan was also testing him somewhat during this period of fasting. You know, perhaps he knew that he, Yeshua knew that he was to remain out there for that period of time. And yet the temptation was to break off the fast and go find food, which is, I think, always the kind of the temptation when you've committed yourself to fast. So, um, the, the other thing is, is that the scriptures don't speak in, in terms of telling a story exactly the way we do when we're telling history. The, the scriptures, especially from the Hebrew perspective, are more concerned with an overarching picture of it, not with all the details. And so uh, I think that, and you would find the same thing in other historical writings, from non-biblical writings, that the history that they tell is not so concentrated on the details. I'm talking from a Hebrew or Semitic perspective. It's more on the overall, the bottom line, and the moral of the story is, is kind of where the stories go. So the details, they didn't consider it unhistorical to maybe uh, differ a bit on some, a few of the details. That wasn't, that wasn't an issue. So the Bible is not written to give us a blow-by-blow, event-by-event history. That's not why it was written. It's not, it's not a historical book first. And I'm not saying it's non-historical. But it's, the purpose is not to give us a history of ancient Israel or to give us a history of the first century or those kinds of things. Or even a history of Yeshua's life. I mean, how much of his life do we really have? We have, we have just the last few years. So the history is pretty, is pretty uh, brief. It's that, it, he's not given to us to tell us uh, exactly the history of Yeshua. It's given us, to us to tell us who he is and what he intends to do. And that aligns itself with a Hebrew way of looking at history. So I, I'm not overly concerned with these accusations that, well, there's contradictions in the Scripture, because those accusations are made from a modern historical viewpoint, wherein, you know, if you read a story in the newspaper and it leaves out important details, you can say, well, that, that guy didn't, didn't, wasn't a very good uh, writer he, or a very good investigator or whatever. He missed all the details. But our, from our Western perspective, that's what makes a story credible. But that was not the case in, in the ancient times, especially in, in Hebrew culture.
So the Spirit of God is credited with leading Yeshua into the desert in order to, to be tempted also accords with the regular connection of the Spirit in Israel's wanderings. Thus, as we read not long ago in our Sabbath meetings, uh, Numbers eleven seventeen, he says, I will take from the Spirit which is upon you, Moses, and give it to the 70 elders. Nehemiah nine twenty parallels the giving of the Spirit with that of the manna. He gave the Spirit and the manna. The rebellion of the Israelites was a rebellion against the Spirit, according to Psalm 106.33, which Isaiah describes by, They grieved His Holy Spirit. The the connection of the Spirit of God with Israel during her wilderness experience is also common in the rabbinic literature. So we're not surprised when we see, again, if Matthew is trying to present Yeshua as the quintessential Israelite, when he's out in the desert for 40 days, the Spirit is there with him, just like the Spirit was with Israel during her uh, wilderness wanderings. The evil one is referred to here as the devil, Diabolos, but later as the tempter, Pirazon, and Satan in verse 10. Elsewhere, Matthew also uses the designation evil one and the enemy. Diabolos strictly means slanderer and is the normal word used by the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew Satan, which means adversary or opponent. That in itself tells you the view of Lashon Hurrah. When you engage in Lashon Hurrah, as far as uh, the Hebrew is concerned, you're engaging in the very thing that makes Satan what he is, a slanderer. That's his business. That's what he likes to do the best. And he does it pretty well. He's really into slander. He gets five stars for slandering. He is the chief opposer of God, the arch enemy, who leads all the spiritual hosts of darkness. The idea that the figure of Satan evolved or underwent a metamorphosis in the biblical literature from merely one of the hosts of heaven to a demonic figure fails to take into consideration the progressive revelation of the Bible. What you'll discover in many of the liberal commentators, and yeah, mostly the liberal commentators, is that when you try to do a history or a study of Satan in the Tanakh or in the Old Testament, what you find is that he's just one of the angels. He's not, he's not said to be good or bad. He has access to God, and he, God actually sends him and uses him. He's one of God's messengers for adversity and so forth. And that it isn't until you come into the intertestamental period and into the uh, apostolic scriptures of the New Testament that Satan all of a sudden is a demon. Well, uh, what, I, what I say here is that just doesn't take uh, progressive revelation into consideration. In other words, what we have in the, in the Tanakh is not different than what we have in the apostolic scriptures. It's just that it's continuing to be unfolded so we know more and more and more. Well, he may appear as one of God's messengers, or he may appear as one of the uh, hosts of heaven and so forth in the Tanakh. But by the time we get done reading the scriptures, we discover all along that he's, he's been the bad guy. When you have the, when you have the, the liar come in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, we know that the serpent is not someone that is doing God's bidding. He is the arch enemy of God, and he always has been. Now, I say always has been. Well, you know, the, the, story, the, the stories of how Satan became who he is, is he Lucifer, and all of those things, you know, I don't, I don't need to get into at this point. And frankly, the scriptures don't give us a lot of information. We kind of have to read between the lines to even come up with the idea that Satan once was a good angel and then he fell and became an evil angel. You know, we, we can speculate that, and we can do so on the basis of some connections out of Ezekiel and other places, but I, I dare say we better not... We better not beat the table about it. The one thing we do know is that from some point in, in time, there was, so, there was a spiritual uh, being who is opposed to God and opposed to his plan and intends to do everything he can to defeat God's plan, which tells us a couple things. He thinks pretty highly of himself, and he's pretty stupid. Because if he knows anything about God, which he must, then he knows he can't win. But he keeps acting as though he could. Okay, it's a sign of insanity, right. He believes what he knows to be false. Yeah, it's, that's Ezekiel. Well, I think it could be applied to Satan, but I, I think it probably has a more immediate uh, uh, application in that prophecy. But that's, that's what I'm alluding to, is that, you know, in the Christian church, that became a standard interpretation. But if you read the context, and I think, anyway, Lucifer is, is, is only found in the uh, Vulgate, isn't it? I don't even think it's found in the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a translation in the Vulgate. Isaiah 14, is it? Uh, so, if you look in the context, uh, it will be in that day, I'm reading in Isaiah 14, verse 3, 
the, when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and your turmoil, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressed has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with restrained, unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, Even you have been made weak as we you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now, in the context, who's that talking about? It's talking about the king of Babylon. And that's clear. Oh, king of Tyre is in Ezekiel. Okay, I, I, I did have Ezekiel in my mind. Okay. So I think in both of these cases, it, it, it's immediately applied to someone who is an oppressor of Israel. And the prophet says there's coming a time when this great king who's caused you so much pain and, and turmoil is going to be deposed and Sheol's going to be happy to, to receive him. You know, and everybody that's in Sheol is going to say, guess what? We're all on equal, equal level now. You know, death is not a respecter of persons. And so I think that's its primary application. Does it have... Some other application to to Satan? Well, that's that's another study, but it certainly it certainly has been so interpreted. Yes, yeah. Bunyan had had a lot to do. Well, well, so did some of the early church fathers. They interpreted it the same way, if I remember correctly. All right. Well, surely the apostolic scriptures have more to say about the evil one. His appearance in the Tanakh is in concert with the expanded revelation of his essential evil character as portrayed in the apostolic scriptures. Besides the fact that the temptation afforded the perfect proof of Yeshua's fitness to be the Messiah, it also teaches us a very important lesson. The Spirit's leading is not always to bring a person to a place of shelter and comfort. Sometimes the Spirit leads into a realm of testing where one's faith and character may be proven. We may be assured, however, that such a testing would never be more than what can be endured, for the purpose of the testing is always to prove his faithfulness in sustaining those he has purposed to save. So we read in 1 Corinthians 10:13, No temptation, I think I would like to translate that testing, no testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That's the first thing that we slip up on. We think nobody's had it as bad as I do. What I'm undergoing, what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, no one else could understand because no one has, uh, has, has gone through this like I have. That's not true. No testing comes on us, but you know what? Others have been through the same testing. I've thought of that with regard. My dad and I talked about that before he passed away. You know, and I, uh, we talked about dying. I mean, he knew he was soon, I mean, he, he knew that he wasn't long for, for this world. And so we talked about, you know, the fear, you know, the fear of dying. Of course, he was 84 years old, so um, he had lived a, a long life, and and frankly, his uh, his body and his mind were were wearing out. So he he was ready to to uh, to go. But you know, I think I think it's human for us to think about dying and have some fear about it, don't you? I think, you know, death is not natural. Death is something that's outside of the scope of what God intended in the first place. And sometimes I've thought, okay, you know, I could, I can count the years now. You know, you don't think about that when you're 20. I mean, you can count the years when you're 22, but, uh, you know, when you're 50, 55, you're heading towards 60, you can say, okay, you know, if the Lord is gracious and if, you know, if I live what is a, uh, normally considered a long life, you know, I've got 25, years left I've got you know 30 years left and you can start thinking about that and sometimes you can kind of think wow I'm that you know that much of my life is over it's always a consolation to say you know a lot of people have died and they did it just fine you know there's there, this this dying thing isn't something you're going to do and nobody else has done it and uh, my my good friend Rob Rayburn I remember we were talking about it after his father the the death of his father and and his uh, another close relative of his, and 
you know, he reminded me, and this is a this is well, a good thing to be reminded of, and that is that death is the is the last thing that we do well for God on this earth. We die well, and so that that means preparing for it to a certain ex- extent. But those can be, you know, those trials can come upon us. Sometimes we have health uh, issues. So we have other issues, and we ask our. It reminds us of of our mortality. You know, it's one of the wonderful things about going to a funeral is that it reminds us again that we all that we all have a limited amount of time. So no testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, or I should say tested, beyond what you are able, but with the testing will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to bear it. The wonderful thing when we come into times of testing is we can, if, if we will, we can say, I'm going to see God's grace, His mercy more than usual. Because He has promised that when I come into a time of testing, that He will make the way for me. So I'm on my, I'm a, I'm on my lookout for how His mercy and grace is going to be more evident than usual. I remember my, I think it was my father told this story. It sounds like something he would tell because it's kind of a farm story. Um, a young boy was uh, was hauling rocks out of the field and dumping them around the side of a, a building uh, to a location where he had been instructed. And there was a man sitting on the fence who couldn't see the field because it was on the other side of the barn, but he would see this young boy come with a wheelbarrow filled full of stones and dump it and then go back and come around the corner and do it again. And it looked to the man sitting on the fence like this kid was taking way more than he could handle. I mean, the wheelbarrow was full and he was, you know, sometimes stumbling, almost losing his balance to try to keep the wheelbarrow. And he said to the young young man at one point, don't you, don't you think you're uh, taking too much in that wheelbarrow? He said, no, just the right amount. And the old man sitting on the fence said, how do you know? He said, because my dad's on the other side loading it up. So there's, there's a sense in which, uh, you know, that may illustrate this point that God doesn't give us anything more than what he knows we can carry. And even when we carry it, he's going to give us the ability to do it. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, isn't that a, does that read strange to you? It does to me. I, I don't think I don't think you need to add. And then he became hungry. <laughs> After you fast for forty days and forty nights, I think that's pretty obvious. Question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the the comment is being made that uh, you know when you fast for long periods of time, you kind of become numb to the feeling of hunger. But there comes a time at which your body begins to feed on itself, and that usually they say is you know between thirty and forty days. But at that point, you you really, if you don't get something to eat, you're you're not you're going to die because your body is is pretty much uh, used up all of the re, the resources that it has. Sure, yeah. The comments made that this Satan would know that he was weak at this point, which which again is what I'm saying is that the fasting period is part of the testing, even though it's also part of the preparation, but it's part of the testing. Well, I think there's maybe an, an, another explanation too. The fast for 40 days and 40 nights parallels not only Israel's 40-year wandering in the desert, but also the fast of Moses for the same period of time while he was on Mount Sinai. The Exodus text specifically notes that Moses did not eat bread or drink water. But Yeshua's fast was most likely from food alone. As Luke specifically states, he ate nothing during those days. So it may be that he had, and especially living in the desert, uh, it's even more difficult. No. I'm not saying that it couldn't be a miraculous kind of a thing like it must have been with Moses. Uh, but it would have to be a, a very miraculous thing because uh, a human body cannot survive uh, anywhere close to that long without liquid. So it's possible that he, that he drank, but he simply did not eat. The notice that he then became hungry seems superfluous, for surely after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, one would be hungry. But the NASB has reordered the words as found in the Greek. The original has this word order. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. It doesn't say, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. The word after comes at the end of the, uh, or the, at the second clause. We should probably understand the word that's translated hungry to mean famished. That is, the gospel writers wish to convey that point that after such a long fast, our master was physically without strength. He had come to the end of his strength. Thus, the enemy's temptations come at a time 
when Yeshua would be required to rely entirely upon the strength provided by the Spirit. His humanity is thus fully in view. He faced the temptations of the evil one, not as a divine superhuman, but as a common man who relied completely upon the Spirit for his victory. As such, he stands as the supreme example for all to follow. If he's the superhuman, then this really has no meaning for us in terms of an example. But I don't think that's at all how Matthew portrays him. He portrays him as a man who went, who came and relied upon the Spirit and was, was physically at the low point, close to death, after you fasted that long. If you don't get food, you're not going to live very long. We may still ask, however, how it was that the Son of God could be tempted to sin, regardless of how we may construe the temptation. We may still ask, however, how it was that the Son of God could be tempted to sin. Regardless of how we may construe the temptation, the obvious point is that the temptation consisted in Satan's invitation to act in a way that was contrary to the divine will. But if Yeshua was unable to sin, since he was the divine Son of God, then how could the confrontation ever be construed as a bona fide temptation? Right? Isn't that the dilemma? While the answer to this conundrum once again puts us into the middle of the mystery of the Incarnation itself, we may seek an answer by viewing the temptation as a force and constructing an appropriate model. Sometimes we have to take the uh, abstract and put it into the concrete to kind of get a handle on it. This is what engineers and physicists and so forth do so well, is they take an abstract thought and they put it into a concrete model so that they can, they can talk about it. Well, here's, I've given this before, some of you have heard it, I'm sure. Consider this scenario. Envision a locomotive moving at top speed down the railroad tracks. If someone were to stand on the tracks with hand outstretched, you know, like the uh, Superman pose, to stop the oncoming train, he would be bumped off the tracks without pause. The locomotive would not even register his presence. However, if the man were able to halt the train in its tracks, not only would the force of the locomotive be entirely stopped, but the man would also feel the full force or power of the oncoming train. In like, in like manner, then, one who yields to temptation never feels the full force of it. In other words, if you're that man, you know, you're, you're a lunatic and you're standing up on the tracks and you've got your hand stretched out and here comes this locomotive at 90 miles an hour and it just bumps you off the track like you're some fly. It just flicks you off like, do you really feel the full force of that locomotive? You don't. You hardly feel any of its force. It bumps you off the tracks before you can even, you know, blink. However, the one who would actually do that, and again, this is a, this is a, a fairy tale kind of an illustration, but the one who would actually do that would feel the complete and full force of the locomotive. Why? Because he did not yield an inch to it. Only the one who completely resists its power knows the full force of the temptation. In this way, Yeshua felt the full force of Satan's attack because he completely resisted the temptations. In other words, no one. If, if you look at temptation as a force, then Yeshua felt the full force of the temptation because he didn't yield to it. He didn't resist it. I mean, he resisted it completely. He did not yield to it. Um, temptation is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. And so he felt the full weight of the temptation because he didn't, he didn't uh, yield to it. Still, I recognize that that doesn't, completely satisfy the question. But the reason it doesn't completely satisfy the question is because we can't explain the incarnation. We cannot explain the manner in which God became incarnate in the flesh and came as man and yet remained God. We can't explain that. But it's just like God to do something that we can't explain. If, if, if we need to explain everything that uh, we trust in, then, then we're... We need to become, we need to go into some other religion because <laughs> the faith that we have is just that. It is faith and it's based upon miracles. So I don't even know if we should go on with uh, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. All right. So the exact manner in which the three phase temptation of our master occurred is not certain, but it may have been more than merely carried out in the physical world. In other words, what does he do? You think they walked, you know, from the river or wherever, or from the desert? They walked up to the mountain, then they walked all the way into Jerusalem, and this is before he's had anything to eat. I mean, it's possible, but we also have plenty of uh, indications that you know you have Philip 
who seems to be there and and then snatched away. Uh, you have Paul saying, you know, I, I had these visions, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't really don't know. Uh, we have Elijah being taken up. You, you have all manner of stories in the scriptures where you have people, uh, you know, as it were, transported from one spot to another very, very quickly. And uh, is that what happened here? I don't know. Or is was it all done more in a vision than it was in in, in physicality? I don't know that either. I, many of the commentators want to make this to be a myth, a legend, and that it really didn't happen. No, it really happened. That's the way it's given to us in the text, and that's how we should understand it. That's how we should receive it. But if he's standing atop a mountain, could he really see all the kingdoms of the world from from a mountain in, in, in Israel? You know, I hardly doubt it. It would seem that some supernatural vision is presupposed. Did Yeshua walk from desert to Jerusalem and to the mountain, or was he transported in a supernatural way? Even Paul was not always certain whether the visions he received were in the body or out of the body. Regardless, the temptations were real and existed in the realm of human existence, as evidenced by the fact that Yeshua was hungry, that is, he was physically weakened. The first temptation related to this very hunger. The manner in which the temptation is given does not question the divine nature of Yeshua. It rather presupposes it. Now, you know, for those of you that haven't taken Greek, um, there is there there is a uh, well, it's controversial, but everyone agrees that there are different conditional sentences in the Greek, and we all learned that in our early Greek days as first, second, third, and fourth condition, depending upon the way that it's construed. But all that to say this, this particular sentence is constructed in a way in the Greek that it's usually considered a first-class condition, which means it is something that is true, and therefore you're asking about the results. In other words, we, we would say uh, to someone, if you're a man, you're talking to a, a man. If you're a man, act like a man. So the if you're a man is not questioning whether you are or not. It's saying... Since you put yourself forward as a man, you ought to be doing this. And that's what we have here. If you are the Son of God, we could even translate it, since you are the Son of God, or since you have manifest yourself as the Son of God, then why don't you do this? Since you claim to be the Son of God, why don't you command these stones to become bread if you're so hungry? Satan is therefore not tempting Yeshua to prove his divine nature. That is a given as far as the temptation is concerned. Rather, in light of the fact that Yeshua was famished after his long period of fasting, the temptation Satan offered was to use his divine powers to fulfill his own needs. Sonship of the living God, Satan suggested, surely means Jesus has the power and right to satisfy his own needs. If you're the son of God, you're the creator, you have, you're the king. Just go ahead and have something to eat, turn these stones into bread. But how could using his divine power to fulfill his own needs be construed as wrong? The answer lies in the fact that Yeshua had voluntarily given up the use of some of his divine attributes in order to fulfill the mission given to him by the Father, that is, to come as a man to redeem mankind. The temptation then, I'll just uh, finish the thought, the temptation then is in seek, asking Yeshua or suggesting to Yeshua that he use his divine power for something other than the mission that he had come upon. The, the very his coming to be redeemer required in God's uh, mysterious plan required that he suspend the use of some of his divine power in order to do that. To now retrieve that for the sake of his own good was therefore to relinquish the very mission for which he had come. The comment is made: uh, I kind of have a hard time with some. Well, yeah, you you, you want uh, you want a formula. Three quarters of this and a quarter of that, and yeah. Well, um, the, the reason we have to say some is because it's evident that he acted with some of his divine attributes. It's clear that he could know the heart of hearts of men. Some would say, well, maybe that was just his supreme wisdom. Well, okay, but there are some indications that it was more than that. He was able to heal in ways, you know, raising people from the dead and give giving life back to the dead. That seems to be an attribute of God and not something that, uh, you know, there are certain attributes of God with which we share. I mean, we have the ability to know right and wrong. We have the ability to, we have a conscience. We have these kinds of things which seems to be, uh, to, which, which seem to be 
you know, communicable attributes of God as over against the unique attributes of God. Yeah, I mean, I'm not comfortable with the, I'm not entirely comfortable with the the so-called suspension of the divine attributes in the incarnation. But I don't know what else to, you know, I don't know how else to explain it. There was, it seems at times that he took them up and then, you know, says he passed through the crowd, you know, as though he kind of did it without uh, um, anyone knowing. So, how did he do that? I don't, I don't know. Uh, Ken? Yeah, the comment is being made, I, I believe that's in Luke's gospel where it says, no one knows the time of that day, not man nor even the son of man. So there's a sense in which his, his all-knowing aspects, apparently, you know, he, he blindfolded his omniscience in some cases so that he too would rely upon the revelation of God as we do. I mean, all of the incarnation is a mystery. But the fact that, the, but the fact that there is the need for the incarnation, even, even the Jewish communities, uh, the Jewish sages, sense this need for the incarnation. You know, I mean, for instance, uh, Jacob Neusner in his book on uh, Messiah Context makes the note in one of his chapters there that the synagogue considered the Torah scroll to be the incarnate word, which is why they dressed it up the way they did. They dressed it up as the high priest. I mean, that was the motivation was that they felt to the need to have the word of God in some kind of visible, tangible form. Why? Well, I think that's the, the prophets are too clear <laughs> that that's what God intended to do. God with you is something that uh, the prophets clearly indicate is, is, is what God intended. And Yeshua is that one who is God with us. The fact that we can't explain it only means that we need to adopt that Hebrew mindset that says, you know, okay, I'll, I'll live with that tension. Because I, I shouldn't expect that I can explain God in any of his capacities I can only grasp part of it anyway. So there's always going to be a disconnect somewhere. At the point where I think I can explain him fully is probably not the God I want to worship. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 